<laughs> Isn't that awesome? So great. Uh, for those of you who are uh, were here, you'll remember uh, about a year ago at Christmas, uh, you know, a couple times a year, we do what we call an initiative for the poor here at Rocky Peak, or sometimes we call them generosity initiatives. And this is where we reach out to some place around the world where people are really hurting. Uh, we just kind of reach out in the name of Jesus to love on them and help meet their need. And we get a wide variety of things that we do. But um, back at, in Christmas uh, last year, not this year, but Christmas year of 2017, we took on this project. They had this vision for this girl's home, and you guys were so generous. As a church, we gave over $200,000 to that project, and that opened the door. And so because of that, they were able to, to do this. And we, we love to keep you up to date on what happens with those gifts that you give and kind of trace them out to see that in real life as a vision becomes a reality. And so uh, we're so excited about that. Also, just a quick update on the water, um, the water generosity initiative that we did, kind of give water initiative last month, that that is all up to almost $70,000 at this point. And so we're gonna be able to build many more wells in uh, Africa for communities that don't have fresh water that uh, will uh, not only allow us to, to meet their physical need, but gives us a chance to share the good news about Jesus and the living water. And so we just wanted to give you an update on all that, just exciting things uh, going on here. So uh, we're gonna go into our time of teaching in a minute, but I wanna give you a chance to stretch uh, before we do that, because it's gonna be a super long message today. And <laughs> so uh, anyway, why don't you stand up, greet one another, say hi, and I'll get ready to go. All right, we've got a new series. And uh, it take you a while to get the beat on that one, but good job. You did the best clapping job of any service so far. It was by far the win, so, you know, good job. Hey, um, so we are gonna go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week for this time. So whether you're here at a worship center, you're joining us on the Ridge or even online, that um, we're just happy to have you here and we're gonna go and jump in. So you guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place, um, under your leadership, listening for the voice of your spirit. And we just thank you that you are a God that speaks, that you're a God that's present. Uh, you're closer to us in the air than we breathe. As we learned last week, in you we live and move and have our being. And so we pray that by your spirit today, you would speak, we would listen, and as a result, we'd be transformed to reflect your glory to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, our story starts today in Europe, and he is so excited. Um, he's come on this trip. He's seen amazing things already, but this is one of the cities he's been most excited to tour. And so after the morning's done, it's now afternoon, and there's this large, huge mountain right outside the city, and uh, the bus is going to take him up about halfway up there to, to visit some old ruins. And so they get up there, it's, uh, it's early afternoon, it's sort of overcast fall day, and uh, they're, when they're let off the bus, they're told you've got about 45 minutes to explore here halfway up the mountain. So it only takes him about 15 to see the sites where there's kind of old ruins of a kind of a castle and some walls and some different living areas. And, uh, but what's really captured his eye is the top of the mountain. And he keeps thinking, like, what would it look like to go up there, and what, what was up there, and what's still up there. And of course, this wasn't really part of this tour. And uh, he's already burned 15 or 20 minutes, and the chances of getting up there and back in time for the bus are really a little bit remote. And uh, he's not really dressed for this. He doesn't have hiking shoes, and it's a steep, rocky, long path, but as he looks down and then looks up, he thinks, I may never be here again. And so he takes off in the hopes he'll make it back in time. Well, today we are kicking off a brand new series. It's called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. -face. I'm super excited about this. I don't know if I've ever worked as hard as preparing for a series 
And I think one of the reasons I'm most excited about this series is because I really believe that this is God's next step for us as a church. It's sort of like, you know, well, you, if you go back in the last couple of years, you go through Rooted and Pursuing God and, and then the Gospel and Unfiltered and, and then Loving People this last year, and you watch us kind of each step of the way, God is so in that, and he's preparing us and taking us to a whole new level, both in our personal lives and as a church. And I, I really believe this is the next step in our journey of transformation. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be doing a deep dive into one of the, um, one of the letters of the New Testament that's written by one of the key leaders of the, of the early movement of Jesus. He's a man named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers that he led to Jesus uh, about five, six years before uh, in the ancient city of Corinth. And so what I want to do today is a couple of things. I want to start by taking a look at, at Corinth, kind of introducing you to Corinth, kind of being like a tour guide to Corinth, ancient Corinth. I want us to take us a look back at the, when Paul first arrived there, what happened on that first visit, uh, and then come back at the end and ask us one critical question that's going to be a key to our whole journey together as we go through this series. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis, Welcome to Corinth. I need you to open your Bibles, your apps, open up, turn them on to Acts chapter 18. But before we actually read chapter 18, I need to set the stage. So what we're jumping into in Acts chapter 18 is that the Apostle Paul is traveling south through modern-day Greece. And uh, he is going to arrive at the ancient city of Corinth in about 50 AD. And we'll talk more about that date later on. So he has just come from Athens. So if you were here last week at Easter, it seems like about three years ago. But last week at Easter, we were in with Paul on this same, uh, what we call second missionary journey. I like to call it a second Jesus-sharing mission. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, he was in Athens last week. He was sharing uh, at the Areopagus. And so now he's going to move 60 miles to the south and to the west to the, the important city of Corinth, which is the capital of the, the Rome. It's a Roman colony. It's a capital city for the whole province of Achaia, which is a larger like state-like area. And so uh, to get oriented today, we're going to need to do some map work. Now, you know, some of you love this and some of you hate it. Um, but if you hate it, think of it like going to the doctor. It won't hurt that long and you'll feel better afterwards, all right? So uh, if you pull out your map, we've got a couple maps there. And uh, we're going we're gonna to start with the first map and just to get oriented. And so I, I need you to look at the right of the map and go about halfway up the page. And I need you to find the word Antioch. Can you find that? Now, if you can't find that, take a picture with your phone and make it bigger. <laughs> All right. So uh, Antioch was a very important city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was the third largest city. Which, what would be the, first, the biggest largest? What's the biggest city? Yeah, Rome, right. And then the second one is Alexandria in Egypt. The third was Antioch. So it's a very important city. It was also a very important city for early Christianity. It was one of the hotbeds of early Christianity. It was the home church of the Apostle Paul. And so what happens is the story breaks today is that Paul is going to grab a buddy of his named Silas and they're going to decide to go north and revisit some of the churches that Paul had started on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And so there you know, she kind of following. He's going to go north. He's going to go up through his hometown, home city of Tarsus, which was a famous university city. And then he's going to revisit the churches that he started in Derby, in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Do you see those, the four there? Now, uh, while he's there, when he goes through Lystra, he's going to recruit a young guy, uh, a young disciple named Timothy to come with him on this trip. So now we've got a, this uh, kind of a team of three. We've got Paul, Silas, and Timothy on this second uh, Jesus-sharing expedition, missionary journey. So they're going to continue to travel north and to the west. They, they go to Troas, major city. They uh, jump on a ship there, cross the Aegean Sea, and they go over to Neapolis. Neapolis was the seaport for Philippi. Now, if you heard last year, uh, we did our series last fall, we did the series called The Gospel on the book of, of the study of the letter of the Philippians. 
So this is the same trip. This was a trip that he went there. He was arrested. He was beat in prison, launched the church. And then he continues on, and he goes to the, to, um, to south and to the east to, through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Then he lands at Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he starts a church, but it gets very hot there quickly. His life's in danger. He has to run for his life. They all take off and go to Berea. Once he gets in Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica, here he's doing the same thing in Berea. They come after him. And so he's not going to be able to stay there long. He's going to have to flee uh, by himself. He leaves Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and Timothy there. I mean, Timothy and Silas there. He's going to take off escorted by some brothers uh, to protect him to Athens, which is where we were last week. Remember Acts chapter 17. And, uh, then, and then after he leaves Athens, he's still by himself. He's going to go to the city of Corinth. Now, when he gets to Corinth, he's going to meet a power couple, a Christian power couple. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Very good, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why it's so funny, but it's awesome. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, so they're just a gifted couple. They love Jesus, a uh, Jewish couple. They had recently moved to Corinth in the last year because a year before, in the year 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius, who's quite the deal, uh, he had kicked out all Jews of Rome. So anti-Semitism, nothing new, kicked them out. And so they had left and moved to Corinth. Now they're tent makers. Now when I say tent maker, don't think Coleman, think Bedouin, all right? Like a Bedouin tent, leather tents. Paul is also a tent maker. So when he comes into town, and there's hardly any Christians here, the gospel hasn't come here yet, they're immigrants, right? So he connects with them. They say, why don't you come work with us, live with us until your buddies get here? He says, great. So he gets there. He starts teaching on the Sabbath. He has to work during the week to support himself. But every Saturday, he goes to the synagogue, shares Jesus, right? And then eventually, Silas and Timothy catch up. They may have brought some offering from the church of Philippi. Remember that series? And he's able to go full time. And uh, now he's going full time. Things start heating up for him. So let's see what happens. We're going to go to uh, Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. So after, after this, in other words, after Athens, he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. Remember, only 60 miles away, so like a three-day journey. Um, and, uh, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, uh, a, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, uh, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And so Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them every Sabbath, and he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So let me stop there just for a second. So let's go back to our map. So we left, uh, we left Paul uh, in Thessalonica and Berea, right? He goes down to Athens, we're still on the top map. He crosses over a narrow land bridge. We call a narrow land bridge an isthmus, like the isthmus of Panama. And uh, at the bottom of this isthmus is Corinth, right? So if you go to the map, the, the, let's go to the second map, the map below, and go to the little vertical inset in the upper left-hand corner, you can now kind of see, I know it's really small, but at the top of the map, you'll see Thessalonica. Do you see that? Kind of get oriented. Everyone see that? Three people see that. Okay, we're in this little inset. We're in the little inset right here, okay? And at, towards, the, towards the top, there's Thessalonica. Do you see it now? Okay, good. No, you don't? Okay, have your neighbor help you. No, it's on, we're on the bottom map, bottom map, bottom up, and we're in the insert. Now, the other two services got this. So I'm just saying, you were excellent with the clapping, but your map work is really, hey, okay, bottom map, insert. I can't even hardly point. Look at this. I gotta, Right here, <laughs> left-handed pointing, right? Okay, are we all in the right area at least? Okay, good. Now, if you go to the top of that little insert, you'll see in the middle, it says Thessalonica. Do you see that? What are you talking about? Let me see. Oh, it's off? The map didn't copy? Are you kidding me? And it took three services for someone. <laughs> William, thank you, William. Thank you, William. Like, 
Is everyone missing that part? Wow, man, they, you got to get here early to get the good programs. All right. Forget about Thessalonica. Go to the middle of that little insert and find Athens. All right, yay. Okay, let's just close in prayer. Uh, I am worn out. Uh, I say, what am I going to do with this church? All right. Uh, okay, you got Athens. Now, go to the left, cross the little land bridge, and see Corinth. You see Corinth? Yes. All right. Now, now we're going to go to the larger map on the bottom, the bigger part of the map, and we're going to see it in proportion now. Now to find, see that land bridge? See the same land bridge? It's got the dotted line across it. Okay. If you go to the left and down a little bit, you see Corinth. Do you see Corinth? Okay. Mark it. Now, Corinth is at the bottom of that land bridge. What this means strategically is all traffic going north and south through Greece is going to go through Corinth. A very strategic location. But notice it's, Corinth is also serviced not by one, but QVC channel, but two uh, seaports. It's got a seaport to the east, a seaport to the west. So the one to, uh, on the eastern side of that sea there is the one at Leshium. See it right there, right above Corinth? Leshium, mark that. Now, we're going to go to the right, to the other side of the land bridge, and down a little bit is one called Sincrea. Do you see that? C-E-N, Sincrea. Okay, circle it. So what this means is that Corinth is situated uh, where the north and the south and the east and the west can come together. And right at the, uh, at the, at the, uh, at the foot, uh, Corinth was built at the foot of a huge mountain. Um, it was uh, just kind of, you know, it's flat land, and all of a sudden just straight up, almost like a volcano type thing, uh, 2,000 foot, what they called Acropolis, 2,000 feet high. And so this served as an incredible military fortress. So in ancient times, this is big stuff. You know, in your place where east meets west, north meets south, you've got this 2,000-foot military acropolis where you can defend the city. And on top of that acropolis is a temple to uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love. In fact, in about several hundred years before Paul got there, there's an ancient historian uh, who said that there were 1,000 prostitutes, religious prostitutes, that worked that temple. Now, we don't know, that may be an exaggeration, but as we'll learn later, Corinth is sort of the Amsterdam of the ancient world. So um, it kind of gives you a feeling where this story is going. But uh, this, this mountain, this takes us back to the story we started the day with. So we started the day with the story of this man, so excited, touring Europe, finally gets to the city, one of the cities he wanted to see, it was the city of Corinth. And this is actually a story from my life. Uh, uh, some of you will remember uh, four or five years ago, Lynn and I went to Europe uh, and Asia, uh, you know, like Turkey, um, in order to, uh, to do kind of a journey as a Paul, sort of an exploratory trip, but we either take the church there. And, um, and so we went, we did kind of journeys of Paul and the seven churches of Revelation kind of stuff. And uh, one of the places I wanted to see the most was Corinth. And so when we got there that day on our tour bus, we got off and we got to see the city down at sea level, the ancient ruins of, of ancient Corinth during Paul's time. Um, and, then, and then after we saw that, we went up the mountain, up the Acropolis, about halfway up. And, uh, and then the, and the bus stopped there. It wasn't going any higher. I don't even know if the road went higher, but uh, the, for a bus at least. But we, we got off there. And so they told us, you're going to have like, it was like 45 minutes, like 45 minutes to explore because there's certain ruins at that level. You know, the ancient walls and buildings and, I don't know, castles or something like that. And so, uh, so, so we get off, and uh, I explore all, you know, what you could see there. And it took about 15 minutes. And I was like, I've seen kind of what everything there is to see here. But what really captivated my attention, because I knew the history of Corinth, is like, I wanted to go to the top of the Acropolis, you know. I want to see that. Well, that wasn't part of the tour. But <laughs> it's like you're there, and, you know, like you've got 30 minutes and can you make it all the way to the top of that mountain and down in 30 minutes um, on a rainy day in flip-flops, right? <laughs> and um, so it was like, look up, look down, look my watch, look up. Whew, I'm going for it. And so 
I take off running up the hill. And uh, just running and jogging up this hill. And of course, I'm going to get up there and back before the bus is ready to go. And so I get up there and it's like, hey, someday I'll be teaching a series called Metamorphosis. I need to take some pictures, right? So I want to show you what I saw when I got to the top, all right? Uh, but I'm going to start with the bottom. I'm going to start with what it looks like at the bottom or down in ancient Corinth. So here we go. We're standing now in ancient Corinth. Not much to see in this shot because this shot was not about what's down below. It was about the mountain. That's the Acropolis. Isn't that awesome? Right? So, uh, so anyway, this is where the military fortress was. On top of that was where the temple to Aphrodite was. And so we went about on the backside of it, about halfway up. Um, and so that's where I took, my, took off from my run. And, um, and so we go to the next shot. This is what it looks like when you get to the top of that mountain. Isn't that beautiful? Absolutely beautiful. Now you can see, if you look here, you can kind of see here a trail going down that goes down to a building and keeps on going down, down, down. That's where I came from. Anyway, I had to make it up and back in 30 minutes. So here's another shot. I just took a few shots around. Here's another one looking down below. But you kind of get a feel for what it was like. Then one more shot. And here's you know, an ancient wall you can see in the distance, right? So um, so what you need to catch then from this whole, you know, story, like why am I telling the story, the strategic location of Corinth. So here was its story. Corinth, the first Corinth, was hundreds and hundreds of years old, way, way back, five, 600 B.C., something like that. Uh, but in uh, about 200 years before Paul got there, Rome, the Roman Empire, began to expand. And when Rome got to Corinth, they recognized its strategic value. It was a major military thing for it to accomplish, for them to conquer. And when they conquered it, they said, no more. They destroyed the city, laid it out, completely destroyed it. Um, and they killed every man. And they took every woman and child um, into slavery. And so for 100 years, Corinth lay desolate. Just a few people there. But a hundred years before Paul came, Julius Caesar recognized the strategic value of this land, the, the Acropolis, and so he decided to repopulate it, and eventually they made it the, the capital of the whole Roman province. Think a province like a state here. It'd be like Sacramento here, except better. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... Um, and so uh, he rebuilt it. And when he rebuilt it, he imported in a bunch of what we call Roman freedmen. In other words, people that were once slaves, now free. And uh, Roman freedmen could often be very poor, but if they were uh, very entrepreneurial, they could also become like very wealthy, very rich. And so he, he moved them in with a bunch of soldiers. And so Corinth became a very entrepreneurial place. Because of its location on the six-mile isthmus, uh, it was a place where east met west. Uh, sea captains coming from Asia in the east, they didn't really like to go around the, the, the bottom of Greece. It was very treacherous seas. Uh, people coming from Rome in the west, same thing. They would often prefer to bring their ships into port at one of those two ports, unload their cargo, uh, transport the cargo six miles, and uh, put it on a different ship, it's much safer and more economical. And everything that comes through gets taxed, right? And so Corinth becomes very wealthy, uh, north and south, all the traffic comes through. So very, it, it grows very quickly. It becomes a place where people from all over the Roman Empire move, very eclectic, cosmopolitan place, becomes a very sophisticated, wealthy place, one of the largest cities in the empire. Um, we're told that by one ancient historian near the time of Paul, that when he visited there, he was like a geographer, there were 26 different pagan temples or shrines or places of worship in the city of Corinth, uh, all different kinds of uh, religions. Um, it was a place of beautiful architecture. It was famous for its sports. Um, it, uh, every two years, they ran these games, kind of like the Olympic Games. So the Olympic Games were the most popular in the ancient world, but every two years, the second most, most popular were the games run in Corinth. And uh, people would come from all over to compete. They would, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of competitions from, you know, running and wrestling to chariot racing. My favorite is women chariot racing. That was awesome. They only get two horses, though, two horsepower versus four for the men. But uh, anyway, it was, uh, you know, so people, they love their sports. 
famous also for sexuality, right? They had two seaports. With seaports come sailors. With sailors come sex. And then on top of that religious sex, sex in the, in the temples was part of it oftentimes. And so it was a highly sexed city. Think of it kind of like Amsterdam. Uh, there was a word in Greek to fornicate meant to corinthicize. So, you know, uh, it, was, it was famous for that. Um, very famous for its, uh, not only its, its religious life, but also for its political life, for its philosophical life. Remember, only 60 miles from Athens. And so philosophy was big. Uh, public speaking in the ancient world was huge. Oratory, public oratory, rhetoric it was called. One of the big three things you would learn in school. So public speaking was a really popular thing in Corinth. Uh, and so it was to this city that God had called the Apostle Paul to share the message of Jesus. In fact, there in your note sheet, one of my favorite quotes, or favorite uh, scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, um, is a man named Gordon Fee. And I love what he says. All of this evidence, you know, history, archaeology, writings, all this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world, right? So it kind of gives you a feel of this very sophisticated city that Paul comes to to share this simple message of Jesus and his cross, which is, of course, completely antithetical to all Roman and Greek thought. And so if we go back to uh, chapter 18, so he arrives there, he, he, uh, he connects with this uh, power couple, he starts living with them, teaching in the synagogue, but in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, that's northern Greece, uh, Paul devoted himself exclusively, he went full-time preaching, and he was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, so he's making his case, but... When they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest, and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Now, this is very prophetic, prophetic language, prophetic action. Remember when Jesus said, hey, if you go and share the gospel and someone doesn't listen to you, shake the dust off your, shake the dust off your feet? This was a, a prophetic thing to do. It's a symbolic move, to, and what it's really saying is that I don't want to be associated, I don't want anything to do with you. I, I don't even want the dust of your town on me because you're rejecting the truth about God and you're under judgment. I want to distance myself. Right? And this quote about the blood be on your head, this is a reference to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. When God commissioned Ezekiel to speak for him, he gave him a very tough message for Israel, either turn or be destroyed. And he said, listen, Ezekiel, when you go to them and you give them this message, if you give them the message and they refuse to listen, then judgment will come, but their blood will be on their own head. But if I tell you what to say and you don't go and warn them, then they will die for their rebellion, but their blood will be on your head. So Paul is referencing Ezekiel and he's letting these, these Jewish people know, hey, this is like the time of Ezekiel. And so I'm shaking my dust. If you don't re respond, then you're going to be under judgment for rejecting uh, the truth. All right? So that's what's going on. So he says uh, in verse 7, so, uh, so Paul is going to leave the synagogue. Now he's no longer welcome there. And he's going to go next, uh, next door to the house of Titius Justus, who's a worshiper of God. So what is, what's a worshiper of God? Worshiper or God, or sometimes we call them God-fearers, are Gentiles who are drawn to the God of Israel. So they don't convert completely. They don't get circumcised. They don't follow all the religious laws, the food laws and so on. But they, they worship the God of Israel. And uh, so this was a man who'd, who'd been there in the synagogue, follows Jesus, and so he invites Paul to stay at his place and open church there. And so Crispus, who is the synagogue leader, uh, he was the leader of the whole synagogue, and his entire household, they also believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were what? Remember a few weeks ago we talked about baptism, how in the early church, believing in baptism, package deal like a wedding. You see that again here. They believe, they're baptized. Now, what's interesting is that the apostle Paul uh, is you know, going to write a letter called 1 Corinthians. He writes it about 6 to 18 months before 2 Corinthians, so fairly close. 
And in 1 Corinthians, we get sort of a vision of what happened when Paul first came, because he talks about when he first came and when they were baptized. And so what we learn from this, when Paul first went to Corinth, that there was a mighty move of God's Spirit, that, uh, that many people came to Christ, they were converted powerfully, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, their lives began to be transformed, and one of the ways the Holy Spirit manifested himself in their life was through powerful spiritual experiences, very supernatural, and very powerful supernatural spiritual gifts. You say, like what? Like the gift of prophecy, like the gift of speaking in a language you've never learned, to, to praise God, uh, called tongue, we call it tongues, right? It's just really language. Uh, the, the ability to interpret these other languages you've never learned, supernaturally. Uh, gifts of wisdom, gifts of healing. Um, it's just very supernatural gifts. And so there's a very powerful move of God when Paul goes there, okay? So in verse uh, nine, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, which is not normal for him, by the way. And he said, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. So things are heating up and Paul's getting nervous you know, is, is this like this, Salonika or Berea, I'm gonna need to run for my life pretty soon. And he says, no, don't be afraid, I'm with you. No one is going to attack you. I know it's heating up, but it's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. No one's gonna harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul's gonna stay there for how long? A year. a year and a half. Now this is unprecedented. Up to this point in his ministry, we don't have a record of Paul staying more than a few weeks or months at most at any place. He's going to stay there a year and a half. So they get the, their first pastor, their founding pastor, is the Apostle Paul, who's going to lead them for a year and a half. Not bad, right? Pretty good start. And uh, he's going to teach them the what? The Word of God, right? We'll come back to that next week. Verse 12. Now, so when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so remember, Achaia, the southern province, like a state, uh, Achaia was what we call a Roman senatorial province. Certain provinces were controlled by Caesar, certain provinces by the Senate in Rome. This was a senatorial province. And the way this would work is that every year, the Roman senators would send a high-level senator uh, uh, sometimes a, a, a previous consul, a proconsul, uh, to the region to rule it for a year. And we know from Roman history that Gallio was sent in the summer of 51 AD. And this allows us to establish when Paul was there, most likely from about the fall of 50 AD, so that's like 20 years after the resurrection, 50 AD, to uh, the spring of 52. So when Gallio shows up, there's a crisis. And um, it says the, the Jews of Corinth, they've had enough with Paul. They're gonna make a united attack on Paul and they bring him to the place of judgment. In the Greek, that's the Bema, the Bema seat, the place where the governor would make his legal decisions. And they make this accusation. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. So remember, it's a Roman colony, Roman laws, very serious accusation could lead to execution. And so just as Paul's about to speak to defend himself, Gallio tells them, listen, and you can, you can see the, kind of hear the anti-Semitism in his voice he says, if you, if you Jews were making a complaint about some you know, legit misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names, you know, Jesus, Christos, you know, these kinds of issues, uh, and your own law, settle the matter yourself, I will not be a judge of such things. In other words, it's like when the Supreme Court says, no, we refuse to hear that case. And so he drove them off. Uh, he's like, get out of here. So kind of ugly scene. Well, they, they're really mad. They really want to take Paul out. And so, uh, you know, they, instead of a riot, they, uh, they turn on Sosthenes. Now, he's their new synagogue leader. Remember, Crispus had come to Christ, and so he was not there. So they have a new guy elected, Sosthenes. They take him, and they beat him in front of the proconsul. He's like, hey, we're serious about this. If you don't listen, we're beating our leader. He's like, if you want to beat your leader, have at it. <laughs> and so Gallio showed no concern, whatever. And you guys are lame, all right? So Paul stayed on at Corinth for some time, 
And he, then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria. That's uh, the province where, where, um, where Antioch is, where he, he left from. Um, and before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea. So they had a kind of a two-for-one special. No, just kidding. And uh, so he has his hair cut off. It's for religious reasons because of a vow he had taken, very likely a Nazarite vow. We're not sure. And, uh, and so then they, they take the seven-day voyage, and they arrive at Ephesus. Find Ephesus on your map. It's over to the right of Corinth, across the Aegean Sea, the top map, the one that you actually have. <laughs> Did you all find it? Find Ephesus? Yeah, good. All right. Uh, and so uh, he's going he's gonna to stay in Ephesus a short time, eventually go to Jerusalem, return to Antioch, and eventually come back to Ephesus for three years. We're getting ahead of ourselves. That'll be for a future message. Um, but anyway, so that's the story. Now, here's what I want you to catch. This is an amazing start, is it not? Uh, the Apostle Paul um, comes to, to, um, to Corinth, has a, a mighty move of God's Spirit. Many people come to Christ and are baptized. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're under his leadership for a year and a half. God is giving them powerful, supernatural spiritual experience and spiritual gifts it is an amazing start. But the crazy thing is that after Paul leaves, things are going to blow up. And over the next five years, this is going to become one of the most stormiest relationships he has with any church because they are so off track and so messed up. And you say, well, what does a messed up church look like? <laughs> well, let me tell you. So... Um, from 1 Corinthians, remember written very close before 2 Corinthians, here's a picture we have. You put 1 and 2 Corinthians together, here's a picture you have. Here's a church that first of all, they're fighting over leadership. They're dividing over their favorite teachers. Who's their favorite teacher, their favorite apostle? They're having church splits over leadership. Crazy. Uh, then they move on. Um, they are... Uh, they are, remember, they, they've come out of the super-sexed culture. They're having a hard time leaving sexual immorality behind. Uh, some of them are even arguing that it's not a problem living a sexually immoral life. Hey, Jesus saved my soul. I can do what I want with my body. Um, they are, there's major uh, conflict in the church, interpersonal conflict because of their pride, their arrogance. Some are ripping others off financially in business. Others are taking each other to court in front of the pagans. Uh, they're having lots of squabbles about divorce and marriage. Uh, they are, some of them are going back to the pagan temples, remember there's 26, and participating in pagan ceremonies. Um, some of them are, um, there's, there's a big, um, there's conflict between rich and poor in the church. When they would have their agape love feast where they celebrate the, the Lord's Supper and have dinner, the rich were getting there early and they were eating, stuffing themselves and drinking so much they were literally getting drunk at church uh, while the poor are starving, don't have enough to eat. They're so into spiritual gifts that they're measuring their maturity by their spiritual gifts instead of their love and their character. Um, some are, we saw last week, are questioning the core teaching of the gospel about the resurrection. And one of the biggest issues that really becomes to, to full, uh, come to, comes to uh, kind of full size in 2 Corinthians is one of the most important issues. They're questioning the authority and the leadership of the apostle Paul. And, and the question is like, why? why? Is because they were in Corinth and they had their image of what a spiritual leader should look like. He should look, big and great speaker and powerful presence and rich and successful and Paul was everything but. He's like, he's always in prison. He's being beaten. He's a reject. He's poor. He has rags. Like this guy's a loser. How could Jesus be speaking through him when he's such a loser? So their definition of success was completely different. And as 2 Corinthians goes on, they have false teachers coming in who are claiming to be, Paul calls them super apostles, that he were the real deal, and they start listening to them, taking them away from the faith altogether. And what's crazy to me 
is that over the next five years, from the time he leaves to the time he writes 2 Corinthians, so the next four or five years, uh, this church is in such a mess that Paul is going to write to them four letters to try to straighten them out. Now, we only have two of them. We have number two and number four. We call them one and two, but they're actually two and four. Uh, He is going to send some of his top spiritual leaders, his top lieutenants, so to speak, Timothy and Titus, at least three times to try to straighten them out. Paul is going to leave Ephesus and make an emergency visit, seven-day voyage, to try to straighten them out. And when they get there, they refuse to listen and they humiliate him publicly. And Paul either has to decide to go big and bring the power of God on them, or out of love for them, just take it and leave with his tail between his legs, just in the hopes of having a chance for another day, which is what he does. And here's the question I have for you. How does a church that starts so strong with the apostle Paul as a pastor for the first year and a half, such a strong conversion, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, such powerful spiritual experience, amazing spiritual gifts. How does a church like that get off track so fast and so messed up so quickly? And that's the key question. One of the key questions we're gonna be asking throughout this series, but I wanna begin to tackle it today. And there in your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis, God's Vision. And what what we see in Corinth, yes, they'd come to Jesus. Yes, they'd been converted. Yes, they'd received the Holy Spirit. Yes, they'd started great. Yes, they had amazing spiritual experiences. Yes, they had powerful gifts. But here's the one thing that had not happened in Corinth. They had not learned to change the way they think. And as a result, they had never grown up spiritually. And the irony is, They saw themselves as spiritually mature, and the reality is they were spiritual babies. In fact, look there on your note sheet. In 1 Corinthians 3, remember written shortly before 2 Corinthians, six months, 18 months, something like that. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Can you underline or circle live by the Spirit? That's really core. We're going to come back. He says, says, I know you have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's obvious, all these spiritual gifts but you have the Holy Spirit, but you're not living by the Holy Spirit. You're not listening, you're not following. He said, but I had to to speak to you as people who are still worldly. In other words, you're not like Christ, you're like Corinth. You're like your culture. You're like mere infants, babies in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, his teaching. Indeed, you're still not ready, you are still what? Worldly, like the culture around you. For since there is jealousy and quarreling, remember one of their issues is fighting over leaders, this was not the only sign that they were worldly. All those other things I mentioned were signs. This is just the first one that comes up in the letter. And he says, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like what? Mere humans. Circle that. For when one says, I follow Paul, those, well, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And you say something, you say, well, wait a second, what's wrong with being a mere human being? Aren't we human beings? Isn't that what we are? And Paul says, no. When someone comes to Jesus, they step out of mediocrity and mere human being and they step into a new world where they're a new creation. The power of the coming age, the new kingdom, the, the new heavens and new earth, the power of the future age has come into the present in your life. You are no longer a mere human being. You have been chosen before time. You have been forgiven of all sin. You have been adopted into the family of God. He's your father, your sons and daughters that he loves to death. He has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, the DNA of Jesus. You have died with Christ in your baptism and risen with him 
to a new life. You are a new creation in Christ. It's time for you to grow up and be who you are. You're acting like a mere human being and you are not a mere human being. You died to that old life. You've risen with Christ to a new life. You are a new creation in Christ. There is nothing mere about you left. And this is what they had lost sight of. They have lost sight of God's vision. And what Paul's gonna be sharing in this letter is God's vision for our lives is a vision of new creation. A vision of renewal. A vision of transformation. Or the word he will use is a vision of metamorphosis. In fact, when we get to chapter three, we're gonna take a quick peek at it now just because this is where the series title comes. He's actually gonna use this word. Um, in chapter three, he's commenting on an Old Testament scene where, where Moses, remember when he would go in to be at the presence of the Lord, he would, he would, uh, his face would glow from the glory and then he would absorb it and then he'd go out but the people would be freaked out so he put the veil over himself. So they would hear what the Lord had said but they would not behold the Lord's glory. They would not be like, Moses' face was transformed, their faces weren't, right? And so Paul's gonna play off of that, and he says, you know, when, we, when a person comes to Jesus, it's like that veil is removed. And we begin through the Holy Spirit to see the Lord. And as we see the Lord and respond to what he's showing, we're transformed to be like him. And so he says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, in other words, no longer a veil. And so we all, as followers of Jesus, who with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory like Moses did, we are being what? We're being transformed. Two things to notice. One I want you to catch, it's an ongoing process. Did you see that, the verb tense? He said when you come to Jesus, the veil's taken away, you're being transformed. It's an ongoing process. And the word he uses for the transfer, being transformed is the Greek word metamorpho. And it's the word, it's where we get our English word what? Metamorphosis. And what is metamorphosis? It's a slow, gradual, but profound change. It's the, it's the word we use to describe the transition, the change process that a tadpole goes through to become a frog, three of you. It, it is the change process that a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly much better. That's good. I should have started with that. Uh, right, and so, so Paul says that we are being metamorphosed. And he says that um, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, now what's interesting is that after Paul writes this letter, within a few months, he arrives in Corinth. And when he arrives there, uh, he's going to write that summer, the summer of 57, he's gonna write a letter to the church at Rome. And in chapter 12, he talks some more about metamorpho. He talks about how this transformation happens in our lives. And there on your note sheet, you have Romans 12, famous passage, but I think one of the most important in the New Testament. He says, he says to these Roman Christians, he says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. Remember what Paul just said to the Corinthians, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people from the spirit, people of the world. You're more like Corinth than like Christ. So he says to the, to the people of Rome, the Christians of Rome, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transform, metamorpho, right? Be tra- notice, notice it's in the passive. He doesn't say transform yourself. He says be transformed. Why? Because this process comes from the Lord. But be transformed, but he says, he says this is how that transformation happens. Be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. This is how metamorphosis happens. It happens through a renewing of our mind. That what happens is the Holy Spirit begins opening our eyes to see more and more who Jesus is. 
We see the glory of Jesus. And we see, when we see him, we see him. We see who we are. We see how life is meant to be lived. We see the path of life. That is revealed. And when that's revealed, we have a choice to make. We have a choice now that we see the truth, either to, to hold on and be conformed to the world, our old view, or to be transformed, to listen and follow, to live by the Spirit, as Paul said to the Corinthians. And he said, so we're transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said, then and only then will, will we be able to test and approve, I like the word experience, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and what? Perfect will. God has a will for your life. It's good. It's pleasing. In fact, it's perfect. He said, but in order to experience that, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Otherwise, if you're not transformed, you're going to be conformed like the world. You'll never be transformed, and you'll never experience the perfect will of God. Are you with me? You following this? This is logic? And so this is what had happened to the Corinthians. Had they come to Jesus? Yes. Had they received the Holy Spirit? Yes. Had they had powerful experiences in worship and spiritual gifts and supernatural? Yes. But had they been transformed? No. Because they were still thinking like Corinthians instead of thinking like Christians. And this leads to a powerful question for our life. And there in your note sheet, there's a section called Metamorphosis, the key question. I have a simple question. It's a powerful question. It's a question we're going to come back to time and time again, one way or another, throughout this series. And it goes like this. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your thinking? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your thinking? Now, on the surface, this may seem like a fairly simple question, fairly simple answer. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that one. But what I want you to catch is what we've seen is God is a vision. The vision is new creation. The vision is deep renewal. The vision is radical transformation. The vision is metamorphosis. And God has a will. And the will is good and is pleasing and is perfect. We've seen that the way that we experience the transformation is through this renewal of our minds. So the question is, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your thinking on a daily basis? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit? Is, are you allowing him to speak into your life, to show you truth, and then you respond to that truth? And what I want you to catch is that the, Holy, the, the Bible, the Scripture is assuming something that, that we, it's easy to miss. As you sit here today, and if I ask you, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your thinking, and you say yes, then I can make an assumption about you, and I can make an assumption about me, if our thinking needs to be transformed, it means we are currently wrong. That many of our current opinions, many of our current values, many of our current practices, many of our current responses are wrong. If they weren't wrong, they wouldn't need to be transformed. And so what happens is when I ask this question, what we naturally do is say, yes, I'm allowing the Holy Spirit because we're remembering all the times we've said yes. But the critical question, you know, there's times when the Holy Spirit shows us new truth that's absolutely beautiful, stunning, and compelling. And it's so easy to let go of our old way of thinking, right? Hey, I used to think of myself as, run down. I used to think of myself as worthless. I used to think of myself as, as used or abused or soiled or a loser. And the Holy Spirit has shown me the face of Jesus. In his face, I see that, no, I'm loved. I'm treasured. I am chosen. I am valued. And it's so easy to say yes to that transformation, isn't it? It's like, yes, I want to see that. 
And it may be hard to see it or hard to believe it, but we want to receive that. But there are other times in the Holy Spirit, we see the face of Jesus, we see our impurity. We see our anger, our impatience. We see our prejudice. We see our selfishness. We see our lust. We see our lack of faith. And when the Holy, we see that in the face of Jesus, that is much harder to say yes. And I surrender to that. But it's in those surrenders to the truth as it's revealed in the face of Jesus that we are changed and we are transformed. So it sounds easy to say, yes, I want to be transformed. I want to be renewed until the Holy Spirit challenges a core value a core priority, a core perspective, a core habit, something that we don't want to change. Maybe it's about who God is. Have you ever heard someone say, I can't believe in a God like that? Well, if God's like that, what you believe is irrelevant. You can believe in whatever God you want to, but if it's not the truth then you're just living in a myth. Have you ever heard someone say that, I can't believe in a God that would? I can't believe that God would not want me to be happy? I can't believe that God would allow this in my life? If God were with me, then I would not be in this situation. I can't believe that God would do that. And what happens when the Holy Spirit says, That's exactly what God wants. What happens when we say, I can't believe that God would ever ask me to forgive that person for what I've done. I can't believe that. I can't believe in a God that would ask that. Well, what you believe is irrelevant. What matters is who God is. What if God is different than your God? What about when the Bible said, Paul says, if anyone comes and preaches a different Jesus, let him be damned. And what happens when we come and we, well, I couldn't believe Jesus. You see? We create a designer God. Created in our own image. Little of this, little of that. We have designer Christian lifestyles. I like this part of the gospel. Look, this part of the gospel, not this part. That's what the Corinthians were doing. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll believe in his death for my sins. Hallelujah. Hey, but I still want to go visit Aphrodite's uh, prostitutes. What? Jesus saved my spirit. Who cares what happens to my body? They were informed more by Corinth than by the cross. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and he starts, I want to renew you, I want to create in you, I want to transform you, be the person you're created to be, a person like Jesus, and we're going to need to talk about your finances, we need to talk about your entertainment, we need to talk about your choices, your priorities, your sexuality, we need to talk about your view of this, your view of that. That's when we get transformed. That's when we become changed when we allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds and we become the people we were created to be. And so the question is, for you and for me, will we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our thinking so that we experience the life-changing, new creation, the deep renewal, the radical transformation, the metamorphosis that Jesus came to give us through a face-to-face relationship unveiled with God through his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are excited as we launch into a new series just to see what you will say, what you will speak. And we pray that, that we would be open to whatever you want to say. God, we just want to, we want to be a people that are quick to say yes. When you challenge us, when you come and say this is holding you back, that we would not be a people to resist, that we would not be spiritual babies, but that we would be people who live by the Spirit, 
listen and follow and experience true metamorphosis. And so, Father, we pray that as we come now, as we continue in worship, as we sing this song, we reflect on the words about experiencing your glory that leads to life transformation, the chains falling, of knees bowing, of lives healed. Uh, We pray that you would meet us in this moment as we worship you, and we pray you use these gifts that we bring, our tithes, our offerings. We pray that you would use these to unleash a movement of truly, not only passionate, but changed, metamorphosed people for your name and for your glory. We pray this, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And that song really kind of says it all, doesn't it? Show us your glory. Show us your glory, we surrender. As you show us your glory, we surrender and bow down to that glory, to that truth that's revealed about who you are, who we are, the path of life. As you reveal your glory, as we surrender, chains fall, fears bow, lies are healed. New creation springs forth. Deep renewal happens. Transformation is birth. Metamorphosis comes. And that's the journey that we're on. My prayer would be that as a church in our lives that we would just be hungry for the word of God to us. That we would be open to what he's going to say as he, we meet week by week. And as he reveals his glory, who he is, that we would be people who don't just listen and like, but we truly listen and follow. That we be a people not like the Corinthians that have the Holy Spirit, but don't live by the Spirit. That we would be the church of Jesus Christ. That we have the Holy Spirit and we receive and live by the Spirit. And as we do, We experience a face-to-face relationship with God through His Spirit that leads to deep and radical metamorphosis. Amen? Amen. May the Lord be with you this week. Prayer on the sides in both of our venues. I'll see you next weekend.